I was stripping wet clothes off cold and freezing and miserable nine-year-olds and fetching them hot chocolate and um, assuring them, no, no, I couldn't really leave service and take them home <laughs> right at that moment. Um, our Royal Rangers came back from their powwow, uh, cold and wet, which was expected, and I heard um, very dramatic language from <clears throat> my own about how much water was coming through his tent and how much he really just wanted to go home. Um, but I also heard that there were people who were at those campfires and at those devotions rededicating their lives to Jesus and beginning to speak in tongues. And I know how valuable those experiences are. And I am leaving uh, tonight, and there's a few of our kids who are going to be joining me this week for a week of kids camp. And uh, we talked about it for a long time coming up. It's our district kids camp. And um, I'm really just looking forward to seeing that roll over um, into a week of, of spiritual awakening for the children and hoping that every year we can take more and more children to that. And I don't get to speak to this crowd very often because while you are all a crowd up here, I'm with your little crowd downstairs. Uh, but I do want to tell you, I, I put those names in the bulletin this week um, of our Wednesday night sponsors and commanders because I think they are some of the finest people um, in the world. Every Wednesday night, they, they give of themselves. And, um, and I just... They're on break now for the summer, but I want to encourage you, if you have school-aged children, three years through the 12th grade, you really do need to have them here on Wednesday nights, no matter if they're cranky Thursday morning and you're paying for it, trying to get them up. This is a place that they need to be so that they can have those experiences. Um, and if you would, before, before I speak, if you would join me, I, I prayed for service there's a 13-year-old girl in the girls' ministry from the Newburyport Church, and her name is Chloe. And Chloe has been in a wheelchair since she was born. She wasn't expected to live. And for all of these years, she's had a coordinator who's brought her to every single event, pushed her wheelchair, cared for her, uh, bathed her, dressed her, brought her to meals. And this little girl loves Jesus and shines the light of Jesus to everyone and um, has gone through some very drastic medical procedures in the last few weeks, uh, spinal fluid leaking into her body, and her kidneys are shutting down and, and back to the OR over and over again. And if you would just lift her up with me, I'm just going to take a quick moment, but I, I, her coordinator is just broken, um, fearing that this little girl isn't, isn't going to live, and her parents are broken, and her siblings and the children around her. And if you would just... Bow your heads with me for just a moment and, and pray for her. Lord Jesus, I bring Chloe to you. Chloe, who is your child. Chloe, who was not expected to live past the day of her birth and has spent already 13 years on this earth shining your love to anyone who came near her and singing songs of your praise. And Father God, I just pray today that she is in the hospital and as she is having procedures and people are looking at her and and I just pray for that miracle because she is in the best place she could be in your hands. And so I just pray for a healing, Lord, a miraculous healing that Chloe can continue to shine your light to anyone who comes around her. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Chloe was one life <clears throat> that, that her coordinator and that the people around her have, have focused on. 
And we talk about this plus one campaign. It's been on your bulletins, and it's been on the annual business meeting cover, and it's been everywhere. And this plus one idea, and the life of one person, what is the life of one person worth, and what does the life of one person mean? In 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. And at that period of time, the Nazis were invading everyone. And, and they came to the Netherlands, and it didn't take long for that small country to be overrun. And into the life of a middle-aged spinster woman who ran a church for mentally disabled people, who took in foster children, worked in her father's clock shop, it turned her into a leader for the Dutch underground resistance movement. Many of you know the story about Corrie ten Boom, and many of you maybe have never heard her name. She, she died at 91 in 1983 after God gave her decades after her experiences to serve the Lord. She grew up in a little house in um, the Harlem area in the Netherlands, and I, I loved having Judy Mensch here and talking with her. Our, our missionary Judy lives in that area, and one of the things that she does is she volunteers at the Corrie ten Boom Museum and House. And what a wonderful thing to listen to her talking about walking through that house and giving tours and getting to actually stand there and see this hiding place where so many lives were saved. But she was just a middle-aged spinster woman with her middle-aged spinster older sister and her elderly father going about their business and their world. And then the world turned upside down for them. And one day a Jewish woman came into the shop, and, and this family was just known for helping. They were known for being the ones to go to for Christian love and help and charity and benevolence. And the Jews were beginning to be rounded up by the Gestapo and disappearing. And she came to Corey for help. And this was Corey's moment to stop what she was doing in the, in the business of her day of fixing those watches and those clocks and going about a very full life already, and to stop and to help. And Corey said yes. And it was the beginning of her journey. And from the amount of people that she and her family helped, it was far more than just a plus one journey for them. This family helped countless of resistance workers and Jewish refugees trying to escape and get to some place where they wouldn't be hunted. They ensured their freedom they found ways to get ration cards where they shouldn't have been able to get ration cards to feed them. And over a four-year period, saved hundreds and hundreds of lives. Until February of 1944, when someone betrayed them to the authorities. And they were caught in a, in a web of their own making, of their own compassion, of their own Christian love. And they were taken away to prison. But at the top of their house was this room and if you, I would encourage you, if you've never seen the movie, you can go right to YouTube and watch the whole movie there. And I was watching last night just the little clip of where the Dutch resistance worker had climbed with Corey all the way up into the house, into the very top of the house, which was her bedroom. And you can see the look on her face, like, that cost her a little bit more than she, had, she thought that was going to, that was her room in this tiny room, and they took six feet of it. And I remember reading this book when I was a little girl, and I remember thinking, oh, it's a room. Okay, I'm sure it's a small room, but it's a room. But it wasn't a room. It was enough space, they said, for seven to eight people to stand up straight, not moving, 
Not moving, not talking, not laying down, not budging, just standing if you wanted to live. And so they had seven people in the house the day that Gestapo came for them. And they got those people up to that house in time. And Corey was taken away to prison, and her sister, and her 89-year-old father, and everybody who had been in the house that day. But those people made it to that room. And for over 48 hours, they stood in that room, silent if they wanted to live. It was a mix of resistance workers and, and Jews trying to escape. And they all got out. God made the way. There was some, the book talks about it. There was some change of the guard or a policeman eventually got switched out that was um, compassionate to them. And out of all of those people, um, a few of them actually made it till the end of the war, but all but one old woman who they it talked about her being senile and kind of just wandering down the street after that. All of those folks made it out. Her plus seven at the time. Betsy, her older sister and her father died in prison. Betsy and Corey were sent to Ravensbrook to a women's concentration camp where you were not meant to come back from. And for 10 months they were there and Betsy died in prison. And Corey in December of 1944 was released because of a clerical error. Except we know it wasn't an error. And she found out later on that all of the women her age very soon after that were sent to the gas chamber. But God spared her life. And for decades afterwards, she had a ministry of forgiveness and restoration all throughout Europe and the United States. Ray was talking to me, Ray Brennan, after first service about how um, when he first got saved, he was stationed in Virginia. And at the time, apparently, Corey was going to church with Pat Robertson and and his wife at, at their church and and Ray got to meet her a few times and didn't even really know who she was at the time because he was such a new Christian and that she was the most unassuming, humble, beautiful little woman that you had ever met. Um, But she, she paid a price for what she did. Her family paid a price. There was no theological point to it. There was no doctrine they were upholding. It was compassion and love and forgiveness and restoration. And the Bible is full of examples of godly people doing things like that. People who were willing to let other people reach into their lives and stop whatever they were doing at the time because they needed them. Sometimes for a moment, but sometimes for a lifetime. Sometimes that person reaches into your life and it's not just a moment. It's a lifetime that they're there with you. It doesn't take very far to look through the Bible for those examples. But in the book of Philemon, which is a one-chapter book towards the end of the New Testament, there's a very personal letter that the Apostle Paul writes to his friend. And if you would look in your Bibles with me for that book of Philemon, it comes towards the end before the book of Hebrews. So Philemon lived in the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. He hosted a home church, and we're led to believe from the writing that he had gotten saved under Paul's ministry and that they were dear friends. And he also owned this runaway slave named Onesimus. And somehow this slave had found his way to Paul in Rome, where Paul had been imprisoned. And Onesimus had gotten saved. And for every commentary that you read, there's a different idea as to how they met, to why he ran away, to how he ended up there. And I'm not sure in the end that it really matters. Somehow Onesimus found his way to Paul and got saved. 
I'm going to read to you a few of the verses. If you found the book of Philemon, I'm going to read uh, verses 8 through 21. And you can see this is a very personal letter. It does not read as if it's going to be read from the pulpit, but it's going to be read by an individual. So it says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And if you step to the side for the moment, I hear in there, actually, I hear my mother in there, this idea of, you know, I know you're going to do the right thing. You know that you do owe me this. <laughs> you know, I could, ask, I could force you to do this, but I'd, I'd rather you do it on your own. And you can hear that coming up. I'm an old man now. Indulge an old man. And this is Paul talking to his friend. And on the outside, we think, okay, what's the big deal? Forgive him, let him go. It's what is, what is the big deal? But it was a big deal. So this was about the year AD 61, and Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And this is the time frame where you have Nero, and we know how that all ends for Paul not too many years later. But Onesimus would have been with him in Rome. And a runaway slave was a really big deal. The runaway slave could be branded, killed, sent to a galley. Just terrible things happened to him were he to be caught. And someone who was caught helping him would be in serious trouble as well. And the, the slavery in the ancient world didn't really have anything to do with race or with background the way it, it tended to later on in the new world. And the the commentary said that if you had the opportunity to walk down the streets of Rome, you wouldn't necessarily be able to say that's a slave, that's a freeman, that's a slave, that's because of color or clothing or station in life. It just was a part of life, which did not make it right. It just made it different than the way it presented itself later on in modern times. But in those days, a slave was worth about 2,000 times what a day laborer would get. It's a valuable commodity is what they would have considered it. Of course, we consider, and Jesus considered them as people that needed to be saved. But from an economic perspective, for Philemon to free this man, 
that was an economic disadvantage to him. It could have made all of the slaves in his south suddenly revolt, thinking, okay, well, if I do this, I can be free too. It could put him in a bad place in society. These were serious things that Paul was asking him to do. Never mind the fact that Paul was a prisoner, and Paul could have put himself in a place of having his life become much more miserable as a prisoner for helping. But there was something about this man that Paul found so important to let him reach into his life and get a hold of him and risk friendship and freedom and all sorts of things to bargain for his life, to appeal to his friend Philemon for his life. The early church didn't have very much use for this book of Philemon because it didn't have any big spiritual theological point to it. But it serves as a model of Christian compassion. It's only 335 words long. It was this direct letter. But, and we can only assume that Philemon did what Paul asked him to do. We don't know the end of the story, but we would assume that because it ended up in the canon in the New Testament, that it had a happy ending. But we don't know that. We don't see any repercussions for Paul. But it was a story of compassion and of love. It says, David Garland's commentary on Philemon says, Paul's letter to Philemon serves as a model of Christian compassion. In many ways, it parallels Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, which captures the gospel in a nutshell. The letter speaks of failure, the need for intercession, returning, forgiveness, restoration. And when we read it side by side with the letter to the Colossians, we learn that getting relationships straight is just as important as getting the doctrine straight. If we are genuine disciples of Christ, we will relate to our fellow believers with grace, forgiveness, and encouragement. So the message from that story is that that one person, that one life matters, even though that one life was a runaway slave whose life mattered to no one and was good for nothing if Philemon wanted to take it from him, that it was, it was worth the risks. If we move on to the synoptic gospels of the New Testament, Matthew and Mark and Luke, we find the story about a woman. And there's many women mentioned in the New Testament, and many of them are mentioned by name, but this woman is not. And yet she shows up in all three of these books. And she's another perfect example of someone who no one should have taken any notice of. No, she should have mattered to no one. She was an outcast, and she definitely should not have come anywhere near Jesus. If you still have your Bibles open and you can turn back a few books to the book of Mark, I'm going to read just a little snippet from the, the fifth chapter of Mark, verses 21 through 33. And again, this story is found to different degrees in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. But I like this one in the book of Mark, chapter, tw- uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. While I was reading through this, I was trying to visualize this. I feel like it's sometimes these stories that you hear over and over again, and this is, I think, a fairly familiar one. You can just get to the point where you just go on to the next verse and the next part in the story. I just tried to stop and visualize what this must have looked like like really important person, desperate father. How desperate are you when your children are sick and you personally can't do anything for them? And he had taken, he had gone to the one person he believed who could and got him moving. Jesus went with him. He didn't delay. He didn't, he went. But then he got stopped. And I'm just picturing this of all the people around him and he's making his way through, and all of a sudden he stops, and I can see Jairus standing there in my mind going, come on, why are you stopping? we got to go. got to go. And Jesus saying out loud, who touched me? And the disciples thinking, really? There's hundreds of people around you right now. He ministered to hundreds of people at a time. He fed thousands at a time. The Bible, the New Testament talks about all the times he would go away to find some place quiet to go pray. There's people all around him. What do you mean who touched you? Everybody just touched you. But Jesus knew that that power had gone out from him. He stopped following an important guy who had the emergency of a dying child. And what greater emergency is that? to pay attention to a woman who was socially shunned because of this disease. Whatever would have caused this bleeding disease would have made her a social pariah. She would not have been allowed by temple rules to be near people. She would have been like a leper as far as the law was concerned. She should not have been in that crowd. She should definitely not have been touching Jesus. Anyone who touched her would have been ceremonially unclean. They would have had to go home and go through a ritual and clean themselves. She wouldn't have ever had children. She probably would never have been able to get married. This had ruined her life. She had no money left, no one to take care of her. All she had was Jesus. She had no business trying to assault this teacher and grab on his clothes as he was walking by. But Jesus saw this as a woman who was worth taking the time for. No one else would have. It didn't matter what he was doing at the moment. Now, of course... Jairus is just wanting him to get to her child. But Jesus knew already. Jesus had the power of death and life in his hands. And he knew he was going to raise that little girl from the dead. He knew that that story was going to be okay. Jairus didn't. But, the, but Jesus knew. And he stopped. And he let his to-do list and he let his next thing to do be stopped and interrupted by someone who had a need. And when I was putting this together yesterday, this was the part that really just smacked me in the back of the head. See, how, how often does your busyness, does my busyness, make it difficult 
for you or for me to see the things around us, to see the people around us that God puts there. And I really struggled with this because I would be gyrus. I would be, come on, let's go. We were moving. It's important. We got to go. Stuff to do. You were coming with me. That story of Mary and Martha in the New Testament, I hate it. Always hate it. <laughs> I get Martha. I, I do. I really do. Every time there's a sermon, <laughs> there's Mary there. Yeah, I know, but you know, you wanted dinner after that was all over, right? <laughs> and that's my struggle, that, that busyness. And to stop and pay attention is so hard. And there are so many people at Glad Tidings, so many of you who are so good at this that you do not hesitate to let people step into your life at a moment and to to interrupt you with whatever you were doing at whatever time of the day or night. And I have witnessed I have witnessed this from some of the ladies in church who have gone and visited some women who have been here for years and men who have been here for years and others who are relatives of someone who they don't even know and is sick in the hospital and needs somebody to come see them. I've watched people, board members and pastors here, late, late at night, um, after things were over, interacting with people and, and stopping what they're doing. And Pastor Selwyn one day, it was, I don't know, a year or two ago, he went off to Walmart to pick up a couple things and come back. And he comes back with this whole family that he met in the parking lot. And they were out of food, and they were out of gas, and they were out of money. And, and they came back here, and in the middle of whatever was going on during the day, we stopped, and, and that was where his attention went. And, and those are the kind of people who are here. And some of us struggle with that. And I felt really convicted about that. That is an ongoing conviction of being, having to be just still sometimes when God wants to say, stop moving, I have something for you to do, and it was six feet back that way, and you weren't looking. Her healing, though, this woman was healed just by touching Jesus. Her faith was, was well-placed, but it came at a personal cost to her. Jesus forced her to stop and step out in faith and be identified. He didn't just let her grab that cloak, be healed, and slink back into the crowd. He forced her to identify herself, to confess publicly her embarrassing medical problem and admit that she had touched him. In the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family, it was Corey and her family that paid the cost for their plus one people. The people in their closet in that hiding place were safe, but it was Corey and her family that paid the cost. In the story of Paul and Onesimus, and even with Philemon, it wasn't really Onesimus who paid that cost. It was Paul and Philemon that put themselves in that place. But in this story, it was the woman. It was that plus woman, plus one woman, who had to pay the cost. And one of the things that I thought about as you and I begin to share and to continue sharing with people in our lives, and we begin meeting the people that God has intended to be that plus one, there will be times of cost for us, but there's also going to be times of cost for them. And each story has represented how each life matters. Those Jewish lives mattered. That slave, that runaway slave's life mattered. This social outcast woman's life mattered. The life of one person is so important to God. And there are countless stories and parables throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that give 
voice to that. And one of my favorite is in the New Testament. It's that parable about the one sheep that goes wandering off. And um, it's handy to talk to the kids about sheep. Um, It's a good metaphor until I remind them that sheep are stinky and kind of dumb, and then the kids don't really like the metaphor anymore. But you think about that, and this one sheep just wanders off. And the shepherd leaves 99 of them and goes to chase the one down. And my mother used to sing, there was a, a nursery song, a, a nighttime song, and it was, it, it was the song of that one sheep that Jesus went in. So the, it's a story that's been ingrained in me my whole life, that one sheep, and we are that one sheep that Jesus left everything to go find. And all of these stories are stories of fellowship and forgiveness and love and generosity and hope and friendship. Our job is just to make ourselves available to God at any time. The results are really God's responsibility. And he's a big God, and he can take that responsibility. So we've had this chair up for a long time. And it's got this, this sign on it that says plus one. And some of you may know Some of you may know who your plus one is now. You know who God's laid on your heart. You know who you have been praying for. You know who needs to fill the chair that you're going to buy along with yours. And some of you don't. I have to confess to you, I do not. I feel like I live in a bubble sometimes with the the kids in there and their friends at, at our Christian school and the work here and the different places. And I have, I have moments where I have interactions, but I, I just keep praying. I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly who God is going to put in my life to bring in yet. And I'm, I'm so desperately praying that I don't miss that opportunity when it comes. You might be sitting here. You might have already been somebody else's plus one, which does not leave you off the hook, by the way. If you've come because someone has brought you, you have your own plus one that God has for you. But in the case of of Corey, it was her Jewish refugees. It was her resistance workers. They were the ones she was hiding in the attic room. It cost her and her family a great deal. Four of her direct family members were killed as a result or died as a result of that raid on their house. Love won in the Ten Boom household in the end, but it was at a great cost. The one life that mattered to Paul in our story today was Onesimus. Now, Paul spent years having many people that he put his life down for, and he paid a cost for over and over and over again. But his appeal to Philemon for Onesimus' forgiveness and restoration could have cost Paul his friendship with this man that he clearly dearly loved and valued, and it could have cost him a more difficult um, experience in whatever his imprisonment looked like at the time. The woman with the issue of blood was at the moment Jesus' plus one, but we're all Jesus' plus one. He's, she's just one of thousands of lives that matter to Jesus. But her healing cost her public scrutiny and humiliation. It could have cost her societal retribution. She could have even been rebuked by Jesus. She did not know what was going to happen. So it could have cost her everything. These characters know 
what we know as well, which is that it's usually only until after these circumstances over that we see the real hand of God in our lives. Like, we don't see it ahead of time. You, you read that story of Daniel in the lion's den. We know Daniel gets out of it okay, but he didn't know that. And the, the three boys in the fiery furnace, we know they get out of it okay. They didn't know that. We read that story of Jonah. We know he gets out of the whale, but he doesn't. We don't see that until the end in, in retrospect. We have to just, just trust God. So this week, the words love wins have been taken on as a mantra and a catchphrase by a world that doesn't understand God's word or his plan for them. But please know, and I know you know, love did not win this week because five people named Anthony, Ruth, Stephen, Sonia, and Elena decided to all agree on a topic. Love wins because Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago and was resurrected, not for anyone's rights, but for the promise of eternal life, of your eternal life, my eternal life, all of our plus ones who have not met Jesus Christ yet, eternal life. Love costs Jesus everything. His gift to us costs nothing, but then it costs us everything as well. His salvation is offered freely to anyone who accepts it and accepts Jesus' free gift, but then he wants all of you in return. I think sometimes when people get saved, if we can paint this rosy picture of, of everything is going to be perfect now and we're going to skip out into the sunset and life is going to be rosy and nothing will ever be wrong again. That's not how the Bible reads. That's not how Paul's life was lived out. God's idea of a problem in your life and your idea of a problem in your life are two different things. God says he's going to work everything out for good for those in Christ Jesus. Our job is just to make ourselves available to God at any time. And the results are God's responsibility. And that is going to look different in all of your lives. The person who will reach into your world to grab onto your clothing is going to look different than the person who's going to do that in my life. You're going to know people in different social circles, in different business areas, in different venues. God might have the person reaching out to you in your life be your own child, and you might have the joy of leading your child to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're in the children's work somewhere in the building, you might have the joy of leading someone else's child to Christ. It might be someone in your family, and that's so hard when it's your family. But it's going to look different. What God expects of each one of you and me is going to look different. But you only need to be available. I want to close with this one verse, and I feel like it is one of the, it's this short, really powerful verse in the book of Isaiah, and it's a really familiar one to everyone. And it's Isaiah 6, 8. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And the visual and the descriptive language, and, and I'm not really good at visualizing things that I haven't seen, but that verse and those words are unmistakable. 
you see God standing there. And you see, I just picture him, and this is when I was finishing this up last night, I was picturing him right here on this platform. And if you would just think about that this morning, you picture God was standing right here. And he was looking out and he was scanning his eyes here. He was saying, who am I going to send? Who's going to go? And what our response should be to that. And to me, there's only one response to that. Here am I, send me. I said that to the Lord a long time ago in my life as a little girl. My goal downstairs is for your children to already be saying that as well. To hear that they come back from Royal Ranger events having conversion moments around a campfire, rededication moments, telling their commanders, I'm not sure I was saved before, so I asked Jesus in my heart again tonight to watch girls at girls' retreats go up and raise their hands and praise the Lord and pray for each other, to see kids at youth conventions go up to worship and raise their hands not caring who's next to them. Those are children who have already said by their actions, here I am, send me. But maybe you haven't said that. Maybe you're here today and you've been somebody's plus one, and you've been coming along, and it sounds okay to you, and you've been intrigued by some things you've been hearing. You're just not sure. Maybe you've never heard that verse before. Maybe you don't know that Jesus is calling your name. Maybe you didn't know that he gave everything for you. This is the day to know that for sure. This is the day... This is the day to say, yes, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so it cost the people in these stories varying things to say yes and to take care of the plus one person that God put in front of them. What will it cost you today to say, here I am, send me? Or here I am, save me, and then send me? This morning, it's only going to cost you walking to the front to tell God right here at this altar that that is what you're willing to do. Now, God can hear you from your pew, and God can hear you from your car, and God can hear you from your house at home. But today, what, what we did during first service and what I'm going to ask you again is that I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me this afternoon as we get ready to close. And if you, if you can picture God standing here and saying, are you going to go for me? Are you going to do that? Are you going to love people? Because love has already won. Love has already paid the cost. He paid that cost already. And there's going to be a cost to us. He's paid that cost already. We need to remember the enemy is the enemy. People are not the enemy. People need to find the love of Jesus, the true love of Jesus. And we need to be the examples of that. And we need to be the light.
And it's easy to love on church people. And it's super easy to love church people's little kids. But sometimes it's hard to remember we have to love the world too. I need to do a better job of that. I'm probably not the only one in the room. So what I want you to do this morning is if you can say those words, here am I, send me. I want you to come to the front and we're just, all I want is for people who are willing to say that to God to stand here together as we close in prayer. And I want to tell you, the only thing worse than not being ready to say that is to come up here and not mean it. So if that's not where you're at, don't come. But if you're in that place where you know you're just ready and you've said it before, these are not unknown words. If you've spent your life serving God, you've said them before. But I'm going to ask to join me at the front, to pay that cost if you're willing, and to stand alongside the people at Glad Tidings that you consider family, to pray together to close the service. And after we've prayed, there'll be people up here. You can stand and turn to a friend and pray with them if you came needing prayer. But I just want to invite you to come this morning. Just come as the body of Christ. If you're willing to say, here am I, Lord, send me. And come join people at Glad Tidings right here this morning as we close in prayer today. Jesus, sometimes it feels like your word is a bundle of contradictions because you say, come to me, my burden is light. And yet, we're to lay down our life for our friend. And we're to pick up our cross and follow you. But we're not to worry about tomorrow. And all of these things are all wrapped up in this life that we call a life as a Christ follower. But your words to Isaiah that said, who will go for me? And he said, here am I, send me. And Father God, I just pray right now, the folks at the altar and the folks in the pews. Lord, we stand together up here saying, I'm your woman. I'm your man. Whatever it is you want from me, whatever that cost is, I'll pay it. We don't even understand what that means in this country. Today it just meant walking a few steps down the aisle to to pray next to people that we love here at the altar. But Jesus, I just pray for every one of those people that you have for us to bring to church, for us to meet, for us to talk to, for those, those Onesimuses and those society outcasts and those running for their lives, Lord, that you will put those folks in front of us over and over and over again. And Lord, for those of us in the congregation who are, are feeling intimidated by the life that you're calling us to, they are feeling intimidated by the idea of giving it all up and saying you're in charge. They're still holding on. Lord, if there's folks in this congregation, Lord, who have not yet given their lives to Christ. Lord, we thank you for being the sacrifice. You gave it all. You paid it all. 
just for us, because you loved us, not because of, of you, not for you. Use Glad Tidings Church however you want to use us. Use the people at this altar however you want to use us. Give us a love and a broken heart for the world who needs you in a way that we have never experienced before. Let us experience it now so that it won't be enough to just buy one extra chair and go fill it. Just use us however you see fit, Lord. Father, I pray for those children downstairs, those children that are already the next generation of church, some of those children who are already finding places within the body of Christ to serve you. I pray your covering on them. I pray that they will continue to put themselves in a place where they will say, yes, 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 I will. Yes, I do. Yes, I love you. Yes, this is my life is for you. Father, I pray that all of us adults can continue to say those same things. So, Father God, as we leave this place today, or as we stay and we pray, Lord, I pray your blessings on us. I pray for tender and soft hearts. I pray for opportunities to tell other people about you. Because every life matters. Every single life matters. And I thank you that my life mattered to you enough that you sent your son Jesus for me. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. And everyone needs forgiveness, kindness of the Savior, the hope of a nation. You're up here and you need prayer, just turn to someone next to you, grab a hand. There are deacons up here, there are pastors here, there are people who love Jesus with all their heart that will pray with you. Don't leave today if you need someone to pray with you. Even if you're not up here now, that's not a reason to not come up now if you need someone to pray with you.